Hello and welcome to the Hacked Off Podcast. In today's episode, I've got Andrea and Lorna with me. Who on earth are you two? Why are you here? <laughs> Good question. Uh, so I'm Lorna Armitage, one of the co-founders at Capslock. Uh, I believe you've met our third co-founder, Jonathan, before. But yeah, very quickly about me. So long history in kind of tech and cyber in particular, and also in education. So I used to be a, a senior lecturer university, but also been a consultant out in cybersecurity for 10 years now. And hi, I'm Andrea. Also, a similar background to Lorna's, uh, I think a bit of a non-linear journey into cyber. So I started out as a programmer and then an academic for 16 years, uh, where I looked at a mixture of operations management and computer science, which was a really nice segue into cyber. So I started one of the first, actually, MSCs in cyber back in 2004. It wasn't called that. It was called Internet Computer and Systems Security at that time. And later into consultancy and then onto Caps Lock as one of the co-founders. So I guess the sensible place to start there would be, why did you found Caps Lock? What was it about the way that the organisation works that was interesting to you? Oh, it's a good question. It was, so we were approached by Jonathan initially, who um, I'm sure he said on, on the Caps Lock, saw, saw an organisation in the US called Lambda, and they were offering these income share agreements out there. Um, and he'd worked in recruitment previously and, and as well as we did knew that there was a cyber skills gap. And he approached us and said, look, I've got this idea. What do you think? And to be honest, the instant he said it, we were just like, oh, my God, yeah, this could be so good. We can remove barriers. We can give people opportunity to get into this sector. You know, we can do education in a way that's really impactful and really deep learning. You know, myself and Andrea have worked in the education space, you know, not only in kind of the academic side, but we've also trained out in industry as well. And what we really wanted to do with Capsock was take all the best bits of that kind of academic rigor, but that boot camp style that can be more flexible, bring those together and do something that, that could really make a difference, I guess, in a nutshell for me. That, that was the key thing, the making a difference. You know, we can make a difference not only to people's lives, but also to that skill shortage in the sector and that lack of diversity as well. Yeah, I think on, on top of that, like you say, that ability to develop something without any constraints. So if you're looking at working within, I don't know, training organisations, they might have constraints of certifications. If you're in university, there is a bag of constraints about what you can and can't do. And this was looking at actually taking all the best parts, being able to do it in a way that was innovative and exciting, as well as improving all those things around diversity, actually making it a little bit more attractive to a wider group of people. So you mentioned removing blockers there. Um what mm-hmm. what are the blockers? What what are the things that you're trying to minimise for people? <laughs> this is where my filter stops, I think. But okay, I'm just going to say it. Do it. You know, for for me, I've worked in cyber a, a long time. You know, and I've had a very successful career in cyber and got got to kind of the top level um, in my career on that. I love it. I'm passionate about it. But if you know, if if I'm dead honest, it's quite elitist. You know, people like the whole smoke and mirrors around it and the you know, using the language so nobody understands it and making it appear to be a, an area that only the, the elite few and the, the special few can get into, you know. So that w- was one of the, the key things for me, you know, actually. Cyber isn't, I'm not saying it's not a difficult field, of course it is, but it's not like, you know, you've got to be somehow some really, really techie or, you know, I've got to have some kind of superior knowledge to get into it. It's just not true at all. You know, I think coming from a diverse background, understanding business or, you know, problem solving, being able to communicate, all of those things are equally as important. 
So that was one of the key ones for me. And then also to do any of the, the kind of traditional certs or university, it, it costs a lot of money. You know, not everybody's in a fortunate enough position. Um, so that, that financial aspect as well was a massive barrier that we wanted to remove. I think as well, you know, the gendered aspect. I think cyber as a sector is really gendered. All the terminology it uses, all the gamification of whatever you might get into, all the people you might see in positions where you can look up to, where you can see yourself. Actually, it's quite gendered all the way around, I think. So myself and Lorna actually being two co-founders in a cyber business is quite quite good. I think it gives people that little bit of inspiration to say, actually, it's we could see ourselves here. And also, we worked really, really hard on any of the language we used, the case study we use, just the whole, the labs we use, anything we do that actually tries to make them as, as gender free as possible, to be honest, to make it look a little bit more appealing to lots of different people. You mentioned use of yeah. language there. Why do you think the use of language is so key? I think because it can be really, what's the word? Off-putting. That'll do. <laughs> exclude it excludes doesn't it you know it's yeah we did it we, when, when we both worked we both worked at the university of bradford uh, together and in the computer science department and we did a lot of work around trying to increase um more more women into mm-hmm. into our courses there so we did a lot of research around that and and even for myself it's kind of off-putting that whole kind of war rooms and battles oh. and you know it's it's just I mean, and it's not even just for women, is it? I'm I'm pretty sure that not all men enjoy all that kind of thing either. You know, let's be honest. It's really interesting to hear you say that because um, that isn't what I was expecting the response to be. Um, I know from, from my own experience um, in cyber, there's a certain use of language where somebody might be telling a story or describing, uh, for example, a certain role. And if they're using language which, which doesn't reflect um, yourself, it can be difficult to see yourself in that role or it can it can feel exclusionary, as you said, because you don't really identify with the, the people that they're talking about. But I, I do like the fact that you mentioned the use of like uh, military terminology and things like that, because cyber is absolutely full of it. War rooms and, and all of that kind of thing. And that, that is... Battle path. Yeah, it's equally frustrating for me, but in a different way, because, um, of course, I'm a ex-military. So for me, it's frustrating because when, when we use things like front lines of cyber, it's like, that is not my experience of what that word means. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly that. And you're absolutely right as well. It's the whole examples that are given. And as Andrea said, we've been really, really mindful of the kind of case studies we use and the language we use in that sense as well. Not overcomplicating it, you know, not filling it with all these acronyms. So people are bamboozled by by anything that you say to them. And I think, again, for me, um, and this is a personal opinion, obviously, it suited a lot of people, a lot of those. Um, I used a term actually you're probably familiar with, Holly, snake oil salesman. Yeah. I saw it was in one of your awards, you know, <laughs> and it suits them, doesn't it? Because you've got the smoke and mirrors that you can put in front of everybody. and Everybody's like, oh, my God, I don't understand this. It must be really, really difficult. I can't get into it or I've got to pay somebody thousands and thousands of pounds to look at this for me, you know, and it allows people. Who, and there's not I've not come across many in my career, but they are definitely out there who maybe not got integrity and use that to their advantage. I, I think as well, you know, like you say, how many times must you get referred to as a female pen tester? possibly yeah the worst one recently is um getting referred to as a female owner because of course i i run my own startup and it's like that phrase does not sound to me like i think the person saying it meant it to sound (laughs) (laughs) the whole whole area is totally gendered 
right from, I don't know, right from the start, the things you read, the way it looks, the colours that are used. I think everything really. It's interesting to to hear you use the term elitist as well. And I think we have like these two ideas that are, are both impacting industry to the same way, but for different reasons. Like snake oil to me is um, vendors trying to make their products seem magic so that you buy it. Whereas elitism can be, you know, along with co-workers and managers and things like that, where they get to a certain position within an organization and then maybe start pulling up the ladders so that no one else can get up there. Do you, do yep. you see that side of elitism? Yeah, it's really interesting you you said that, actually, because I was thinking about the podcast and um, I'm usually thinking about what I should or shouldn't say, because, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but um, I was thinking about that and you come across so many people and we've seen it at Caps Lock. You know, we are disrupting things at Caps Lock and intentionally so because we feel the need disrupting, you know, in, in a positive way to get more people in and, and to give more people the opportunities. And you get you tend to get two two camps of people the ones that are like yes this is absolutely needed in the sector we you know it's brilliant what you're doing and then the others that are like well this must be a scam this is rubbish you know really negative about it and it tends to be the people um and thankfully they're in the minority the people that really don't want to give other people the opportunity because they like being the special ones in there and and for me and I, and I can speak for Andrea and Jonathan in this, where the kind of people that we get to the top of the ladder or even halfway up, we're putting our hands down. And do you know what? If somebody passes us, even better, you know, and goes on to be successful. Uh, yeah, I like the use of um, disruption there. I know that's a word that investors love to, to hear that your um, product or innovation is disruptive in the market. But I think one side of it is it's just giving people options, right? It isn't necessarily yeah. that everything has to be a perfect fit for everybody. Now, I'll tell you how this plays back into what we were talking about a second ago with diversity. I very often hear a phrase about cyber, which frustrates me greatly, and it's you don't have to be technical. And I prefer the phrase, you can be technical if you want to be. The reason that I reword it in that way is I think you don't have to be technical is reinforcing a stereotype, whereas you can be technical if you want to be is giving somebody a second option. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point, actually. I'm going to pinch that. <laughs> Please do. <laughs> <laughs> I'm loving it. <laughs> that's the thing, though, right? It's just it's giving people options. It doesn't have to be that this product or this idea or this way of working is perfect for everyone. It can just be like, if this works for you, then the option is that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think alongside that, there's always this misconception that technical is really difficult. And what people refer to as soft skills, everybody just has by nature of being a human being and from our experience it can be completely the opposite way around we've retermed our soft skills as impact skills just simply because there's a connotation around soft skills that make it suggest it's easy and not something that you have to try too hard at i think this is something that we we spoke to jonathan about when he was on the podcast was that um uh, effectively want to ban the term soft skills because i just don't think it's descriptive um, <laughs> yeah I like your use of impact skills. I think that's a, an interesting way of putting it. Previously, I've called it professional skills, just in terms of the, the fact that it's the, the aspects of your role around the specific um, technical specification or the technical speciality. Yeah, we thought long and hard about it, you know, and it comes back to what we said about the language and everything we used. And we, and we settled on that because we wanted it to be clear that they are really important. They are really impactful. And, you know, um, for me, you know, as a, cyber professional for a number of years and as a hiring manager previously they're the ones that are really difficult to find sometimes and they're the ones that are the hardest to teach if people don't have them yeah also just you know if, if you are the candidate trying to get a job 
um, those are the skills that will make you come across well in the interview. So even if you're, you know, equally technically capable to somebody else, if you can demonstrate that and talk about that skill and talk about those capabilities, that's your impact skills, to use your term, benefiting you in other ways. Yeah, exactly that, exactly that. You, You stand out, don't you? I think also looking at the word technical, People quite often have a, a fear of it. It's a bit like uh, being in school and being told this is a maths problem. Um, <laughs> it kind of freaks certain people out, I think, just because they've been told all along, oh, you're not technical or you're not good at maths or you're not good at all these things. And so they hear the word and think, I'm not going to be able to do it. And even something along the lines of changing the terminology, not saying technical, actually, this is using technology, uh, making it just appear a little bit more every day and less scary. I think can help engage people and develop confidence. To be honest, actually, one of the big things we've seen, Holly, in terms of people we've looked at who've come onto the programme is is in terms of confidence building. Actually, quite often, some of the real skills are in there, but actually, given that they've got the fear of the sector in general, it's feeling I'm not going to be good enough for this. I don't have the confidence. I haven't got the right kinds of skills. You know, people out there are fantastic and I'm just little old me. And I think, you know, working with people and building that confidence, you can see it. I don't know. The development in them over a a series of weeks is massive. I think as well, just saying like technical skills doesn't really give you a lot of granularity, does it? Is that like technical practitioner where you're able to use um, tools and things like that? Or is it programming skills or is it analytic skills? Technical skills could be anything, right? Yeah, absolutely. It's such a a vast area isn't it and a vast range of technologies that we use and and all sorts you could be great for using linux for instance and fantastic at that but not able to do anything in windows you know that that's not equally not as helpful unless you're going to stay in a linux environment for for the whole of your career you know it's <laughs> more it's more about actually the ability to to learn isn't it really you know and the confidence to to get hands on how do you build that confidence in people then Oh, good question. I mean, we we we've seen it on almost in almost all of our learners. You know that imposter syndrome. We work really closely with them in terms of our mentors. So we've got some fantastic industry mentors um, in with the learners. So some of it's with that. We give examples. So we do a do a bit of a session with them about about us and where we started. You know, I, I tell them all. I left school at sixteen with two GCSEs and you know worked in warehouses. You know, did did all sorts in my career and you know. So we, we give those examples as well. You know, and we're really quite open and honest with all our learners around our journeys as well. You know, telling them, you know, I've, we've got so far in our careers, we, we still suffer with imposter syndrome. I'm like coming onto this and thinking, oh, I'm going to be rubbish on this podcast. It's the first time I've ever done one. You know, so it's, it happens, doesn't it? You know, it's a constant thing, I think, that a lot of people battle with. But we do a lot of work with them around that. We do career mentoring. We help them to pick out their transferable skills. Uh, you know, they're getting constant feedback in the classroom around the work that they've done and I have to say some of the work that these learners are producing is, is just astounding as it yeah, really is incredible. You know, myself and Andrea have taught and trained hundreds if not thousands of undergrad, undergrad postgrad PhD students over the years and honestly the work that they're producing in the time frames that they've got coming from the experiences they've had it is just mind-blowing so it's it's just it is just working through and, and like I say, mm. the mentoring and a constant thing and it's it's something we've got to keep doing and then you know they'll go for an interview and they won't get it so it, the confidence dips again and we've got to keep explaining it's just all part of the experience you know 
you're going to go for these interviews. I've lost count of the amount of jobs I've been rejected for over the years. You know, it happens, doesn't it? So it's, it's about around that, really. It's also around pushing them a little bit as well. So as well as the handholding stuff, it's a little bit of feeling the fear and doing it anyway. Encourage them to speak up and present stuff and feedback and ask questions. And you can see day on day, as Lorna said, the confidence growing. So there is quite a bit of pushing them along as well. It's not all... Um, we are definitely challenging. Yeah, we are definitely <laughs> challenging them. You know, the first like the first two weeks they're doing risk assessments, you know, they're looking at a case study of a business, going in there making some some really serious decisions, you know, as if they were out there as a as a kind of senior consultant and doing these things. So yeah, very much being challenged. You mentioned interviews there, and I know that's something that a lot of people that I speak to, certainly when they're early in their career don't realize that it's not it's not possible to be successful in every interview it's not possible to go and be you know to get a job offer at the end of every interview just based on the the simple metrics of it the number of people who apply if there's only one opening and many many people apply then not everyone can can possibly get an offer or maybe it might actually be the case that that role isn't a great fit for you and the the company or, or yourself identifies that during the process of this you know, something that's important to you that they don't offer or vice versa. And I think people, if they go for an interview and they're not successful, that could be quite a kickback for them when, when really it, it shouldn't be. Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a couple of things in that. And first of all, I think people forget that an interview is a two-way process and you're interviewing the employer and the organisation just as much. And it might, you know, it's okay for it not to be a fit for you, actually. And I totally get that not everybody's in a privileged position where they can turn jobs down and sometimes they need one but it is you know it is a two-way process and secondly as you say sometimes it's just a numbers game isn't it you know putting the applications in sometimes it's as as simple as you know you just click with that person on a personality level you know just that they've already got somebody else in mind for the job you know I think the really important thing for people to remember and I totally appreciate it's difficult so when you're in that situation and you're applying for lots of jobs but the important thing I think for people to remember is it's not personal you know, it's it's not personal at all. Yeah, and um, sometimes it can just be not knowing what to expect when, when you go in as well because every business is different and every hiring manager is different and every recruitment process is different. So, you know, you can't be completely prepared for these things. Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned um, mentoring. How do you feel that mentoring helps with these kinds of skills? I think it's, it's really good for the learners to see, you know, people and be able to speak to people out there who are in the industry and doing it it's really important for that to be separate from caps lock because you know to some extent you know we've got a really good relationship and a really good trust relationship with our learners um but at the end of the day they're always going to be a little bit like well you would say that because you know <laughs> we're doing your course <laughs> so i think it's, it's really good that they get they get that information and the viewpoints of, of other people outside of caps lock outside who are already in industry doing this people lots of women in there you know lots of BAME people in there that they can identify with and they can see of being successful and also had the struggles that they're probably you know the imposter syndrome stuff the things that they're struggling with now they've been there and they've seen that and they can tell them actually it gets better um so I think it is important and they can also they talk to them you know there's they do lots of different stuff and we've got we're, as I said we've got some fantastic mentors we are so fortunate but, you know, they take the problem areas to them, they discuss through with the mentors the solutions that they came up with. So, again, the mentors can look at that and say, well, yeah, but did you think about this and give them a different viewpoint? Because let's be honest, you know, 
there's a famous saying now at caps lock that the learners always repeat back to us and it's all, and it's it depends because it does in cyber it totally depends it depends on the organization the situation the risk appetite and all these things so they can get different viewpoints as well there um so i think it really helps to support them on their journey yeah it's definitely having that critical independent eye that can see it from a totally different direction and support the learner just in their learner journey rather having than having to think about the curriculum and the learning and everything else it's it's just a totally different view I think and loads of different experience yeah that's one of the big things that I often hear about people who are looking to to break into cyber or that they maybe have seen one role that they think's interesting it's such a broad industry that it can be difficult for people who are new to understand what all of the different roles are yeah absolutely it's a minefield isn't it if you're first looking at it you've got the kind of um sexy roles aren't you the pen tester you know as you know and you know yeah so you know (laughs) there's those that people know about but there's so many that people don't know about you know the the grc roles the compliance the auditing you know the social engineering there's there's so many and i think that's why when we looked at this curriculum we knew it was really important to to make sure that we were teaching that all-round cybersecurity professional curriculum not just kind of one aspect um because we've got learners who've come in and wanted to do one thing and then gone oh god I didn't even know you could do this as a career you know I didn't even know this was a thing and then looking at that and this is really fun you know whether it be policy development whether it be risk assessors um, risk analysts you know what, whatever it may be um they, they just weren't aware of it until they came on the course which is fantastic to see you mentioned um imposter syndrome can we talk a little bit about imposter syndrome because I think I think my stereotype is that, well, everybody in cyber has experienced this, but not everybody might know its name. So what do you mean by imposter syndrome? For me, it's just that feeling of not being good enough to be in the space you're in. It's a belief that everybody else has got it sorted somehow and you haven't, uh, that you'll never have the right skills, the right anything to fit in. I remember when I was doing the PhD and thinking, to be honest, I've believe I was pushed in education to do stuff to start feel a bit clever I thought I'm going to get a PhD and then I'll feel smart you know what else am I going to... and I got a PhD and I thought I just feel stupid with a PhD it's really not helped me <laughs> um, so I think it is that belief really that other people have got it sorted and you haven't uh, they've got the skills and you don't and somehow you're never going to achieve it and I'm not 100% why, why it seems to be the case that for women it's a bigger issue uh, but I that certainly is. I know there's some statistics or some research somewhere that says if there's a job job specification with 10 skills listed, if um, a man sees three of those he has, then he may apply for the job. If a woman sees nine, then she ain't quite good enough and won't actually go for it. So I'm not yeah. sure why that is the case always. It's an interesting one. Isn't it? And I, and I think, I think it, it, the, well, the research shows it is more prevalent in women is imposter syndrome. But I, I think you know, everybody must must feel that at some point in their career. You know, it's again, and, and to reiterate what Andrea said, for me, it's, it, it is similar things. You know, it's that, who do I think I am? I can't do this. I'm a fraud. I'm a, you know, everybody else knows what they're doing and I'm just pretending here. And, you know, and actually, I remember when, when we moved, well, when I left um, university to go full time into industry, we'd done quite a lot of consulting as part of our role as an academic anyway. And we had our own consulting business. And we could do so many days. And when I made that that kind of leap into going into industry full time, even though I'd been doing it already for a number of years, 
I did have that, oh God, who do I think I am? I'm not going to be any good at this. I'm not going to be able to do this. You know, and that was with like so many years of experience behind me and working kind of at a really high level already. And I remember getting into it and sitting in a few meetings and going, God, I know so much more than these people, you know? <laughs> I think what you're saying is is right there, though, that, you know, everybody has probably felt it, but maybe not everybody realizes that everybody else has felt it. Yeah. And also this this feeling has, has an M. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it's really important for us to be open and honest with our learners, you know, and share our journeys with them so that, that they can see, yeah, you know, you're not the only ones going through this. I think sometimes as well, it's the fear of the unknown. You know, it's until you dip your toe in the water and seeing actually, oh, crikey, that's what it is. Yeah, I can do this. It's it's kind of looking in from a bit of a different point. I remember feeling it as a parent, to be honest. Everybody else knows what they're doing. And I don't know which way this thing should be up, you know, which is up and which is down. And I'm sure that some of it is just not, not have ever been there, really. So not yeah, have that experience. And it's not helped, is it, when when you we as a, uh, an industry do project that image of it's really difficult, it's really, you know, all the smoke and mirrors, as we talked about earlier, um, if you've already got those feelings as well, and then you see, oh, God, all these words and acronyms and technologies, and it's just, I'm not never going to be able to do it, then, you know, it, it can just seem unachievable. Yeah, and I think it's something that comes with you throughout your career as well it's not necessarily just something that you feel when you're when you're still breaking in I remember you know feeling these kinds of things at several points in my career for example you know going to do penetration tests for uh, an organization in a new vertical or something like that going to work uh, in the retail sector or something and, and hearing them say you know well have you ever worked in retail before and then when you get into it it's like oh all of your computers are the same as everybody else's computers <laughs> and all of your vulnerabilities are the same too yeah so, yeah, I think we feel it a lot, but it's not necessarily something that should hold you back. And mentioning there as well, fear of the unknown. I think fear of the unknown can, can potentially be a good thing. I think feeling nervous or, or being afraid of an opportunity can help you make sure that you're prepared for it. Yeah, I absolutely agree with that. And going back to what you said about him feeling it all the time, you know, I every new contract, every new project that I work on, every new role I, I took up, I absolutely had that feeling. And even now, you know, it still happens now when we're going into meetings on certain things. It does happen. And I think you're right, that fear can motivate you. I think fear for me in this context is only a a bad thing if it's stifling and debilitating and it stops you doing things. And it is, and it's that, that saying that Andrea said earlier, that feel the fear and do it anyway can be really powerful. Yeah, definitely. How do you encourage people to to realize that though? How do you encourage, you know, these people who are maybe looking to, to rescale or a new new into cyber who don't realize that we're sitting here saying, Oh, everybody feels this. How how do you encourage them to use their fear or, or these other emotions to their benefit? I think some of it is open up and opening up and being honest about this is how it is for everybody. So by sharing stories around, yes, everybody feels fear about certain things they've never done before or even things they've done for the whole of their lives, actually. Just making it a bit more commonplace to be able to say, yeah, this does make me nervous, standing up in. It's interesting. Different people have different things that make them totally nervous. I know for me, having a one-on-one conversation like this is much, much more nerve-wracking than standing up in front of an auditorium with 300 people in. There I'm totally comfortable, yet this, I, do you know what, is I feel really <laughs> quite anxious about. So I think being open and honest about where those fears sit, making it just a little bit more normal. Yeah, 
why do you think you get those feelings though? Why do you think that you would be, you know, feel anxious about a podcast or any other kind of, you know, one-on-one conversation? Whereas for you, talking to an auditorium is easier. Where do you think that comes from? For me personally, I guess the the auditorium bit is I'm a little bit more in control. I'm able to just direct (laughs) it and say what's coming next and hear I'm can feel a little bit more in your back foot. I'm not totally prepared. It's not for me to organise. It makes me sound awful, doesn't it? A bit of a control freak. But I think it's just that unknown again for me. I don't know where it's heading next. And what if I sound stupid? <laughs> <laughs> for the benefit of the audience, I was nodding along and then suddenly looked surprised because that wasn't the answer that I was expecting. I know um, for me, public speaking of, of large groups is it's much easier now. It's much less um, fear-provoking because I'm I'm used to it I, I do it so frequently and that was what I was expecting you to say was that having the academic background you know you've done that kind of thing a lot and therefore you kind of get used to it but for you it sounded a little bit more like being in control of the dynamic and in control of the the situation was maybe more important yeah 100 percent. I think it's a a bit of a feeling of comfort if you can con- totally decide where it's heading next then it's within your control then I remember giving this oration at a university for this, I can't remember who it was, but she was a really inspirational woman. And actually not being worried about this, somebody said, you know, I said I was really worried about doing this. Well, why? You you don't mind standing up and speaking. Yeah, not at all. I love that part. Being able to speak about this woman was just fantastic. It was having to go for lunch before. It was freaking me out. (laughs) (laughs) So I think that's, but for each person, actually, that area of fear might be so entirely different. And a bit understandable for some and not understandable in other areas. But I guess it's bringing it to the surface and saying everybody feels like this about certain things. It might not be in the same situation as you, but actually they'll feel it in some other place. So I might be all right delivering in a presentation, but I may not feel so confident in other areas. Yeah, I think as well as that, it's, it's reaching out as well, you know, try and build your connection, reach out to friendly people, you know, say now anybody who's looking at cyber hook me up on LinkedIn reach out send a message happily speech and put you in touch with people but if you can get people that you can reach out to who you know who are already having these conversations as well you know even better I, I was just smiling at Andrew because I'm like totally the opposite I'm just like do you know what sod it I'll do it and then I beat myself up about it later you know <laughs> god I said the wrong thing on the podcast I shouldn't have said this or I should have said that you know I'm just I'm a bit more impulsive I guess do you think that you, you build into situations that, that plays to your strengths and is that something that you're conscious of or is it just something that you live with? <laughs> I think I consciously stay away from one-on-ones mostly. <laughs> so yeah, I avoid things that really freak me out if I can, which isn't always a good thing, to be honest. I think you should push yourself. I think in terms of cyber actually as well, giving it a friendly face helps as Lana says, kind of reaching out to people. But I also think making it more human actually not having to be 100% perfect, not having to be this particular way, just saying actually we're all vulnerable in these different ways. We've all got our good and our bad areas, things that we like, things that we don't. And I am pretty bad at staying away things that, from things that freak me out. I'll do my best to avoid it. <laughs> That's um, not necessarily a bad thing, though, because I think like, what, what I was looking to explore there was it's your awareness of it, right? It's like if you know that this is a weakness, then you can build your environments and you can build things like your network that was mentioned a second ago to support you for those things. But if you don't explore what works well for you, what you find difficult, what doesn't work well for you, 
then you'll you'll struggle. And if you're new to an industry or if you're new to, to working in general, if you, you know, just, just leaving university or something like that, you might not necessarily know these things about yourself. Yeah, that's very true. It is understanding yourself and your own strengths and weaknesses is really powerful, isn't it? But you, you're absolutely right. I think it takes time to get there. I don't know whether it's time and a maturity to get there. Um, learning from things, learning from roles that have been good, roles that have been bad, you know, all of that builds to that and it is quite difficult when you're first coming into a sector to understand that you know there's stuff that you can do I guess to understand yourself a little bit better um, around things like the MBTI and there's pros and cons to that you know there's research that says it's brilliant there's research that says it's absolute rubbish but I think the more that you can get to know yourself understand yourself and be okay with yourself you know what what I don't know if it was yourself or Andrea just said about you know those differences God, it'd be bloody boring, wouldn't it, if we were all the same, you know? And and, and cybersecurity won't work very well, would it? And I think this is one of the problems actually with cyber at the minute, that lack of diversity means that you're not getting those different viewpoints always. And I think for me, it's, it is kind of, without sounding too hippie, being at peace with yourself, being okay with who you are. And that comes with time, I think, and maturity. And a lot of mistakes, yeah. if my life's anything to go by. <laughs> I, I think as well, I don't know that you agree that sometimes it's finding the safe spaces where you can explore stuff. I know within Caps Lock, it's a really safe space to be able to explore presenting things and doing things that take you out of your comfort zone. And if you can find a safe space to do this kind of thing, when it becomes a, an environment where you're under a bit more pressure or it matters a little bit more to feel like you're on top of it or you're delivering something perfect, then you've at least had a bit more practice in a, in a space where people are going to hold you up and say actually you've done brilliantly and you know I think that as well we perhaps need more more spaces to just explore not doing it right you know making mistakes I think uh, one of the things as well is the fact that we we can talk about these skills as if you have them or don't have them and really what we're pulling out with this conversation is it's it's far more granular than that right so you might look at something like public speaking skills and say, oh, you either can or cannot um, public speak because you've gained that skill. And then what we've been talking about here is that public speaking can be different depending on whether it's uh, one-on-one or a small group or a lecture theater filled with people. Yep. And I think um, having, you know, not only the, the safe space or the, the uh, ability to have like an introduction to, to gaining that skill is important, but also just remembering as you, as you build that skill, um, there's there's a lot more to it. You know, you might be able to get on a stage and deliver a presentation to a hundred people who sit in silence, and that might work well for you. But if somebody shouts out or asks a question partway through or heckles you, the ability to deal with somebody heckling is a is a completely different skill, right? Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, when, so when we worked at the university. It was uh, quite funny because An- Andrea never taught first years. She's like, you, she just didn't teach first years because a lot of when you teach in first years in a university. You know, I took on a lot of the first year modules as well as mm-hmm. other colleagues is you've got 150, 160, 18, 19 year olds that come from a school environment. The biggest skill set there is not public speaking or lecturing, it's classroom management. You know, <laughs> just keeping them kind of focused, engaged in the room with you. And you just really didn't enjoy that element of it, did you? Myself, I came from originally, I was a, a taught in secondary a secondary school in, in the city of Bradford. So, you know, I am my spurs there in the classroom management department. So for me, that kind of came second nature. Whereas like for Andrea, it was just like, I just don't want to get involved in any of that. And then there's things where Andrea can speak so succinctly on a topic 
and I babble, you know, and just make things up as I go along sometimes. And people must look at me and think, what are you talking about, Lorna? Uh, you know, but so it is, it is understanding your skill set um, and, and just feeling like you can be yourself. And I think that safe space is really, really important for that. One of the key bits of advice I, I give our learners when they're going for job interviews, amongst other stuff is just be yourself because if they don't like you it's not the place for you you know it's not the right organization for you you know if they don't like who you are and what you're about then then maybe it's just not fit for you and I know again that sometimes you're not in a position where you can pick and choose but you know I think it's really important that enjoying your work is so important isn't it to, to mental health to everything really I think um, it's a it's a difficult thing to bring up because you you say you know you you want to uh, avoid the privilege problem right you want to talk about you need to make sure that the role is a good fit for you when you're going through interviews but obviously you, you have to acknowledge the fact that some people aren't in such a privileged position and they just need work yeah that's fair enough but also equally getting a job at a organization that isn't a good fit for you that's going to put too much pressure on you that's going to negatively impact your mental health is it is a really bad thing and it's something for, for people to be aware of that they should be conscious of those things absolutely I've, I've been in that position you know many many years ago when I was a teacher actually in a role where I literally every morning got up and cried before I went to work because it was just so horrible and it was nothing to do with the role in particular it was to do with the people that I worked with and the culture of the organization you know it just was not a fit for me and, and at that time I was in a position where I could not give that job up you know I couldn't just quit and and say I don't want to do this anymore for financial reasons and I just it, it, it's a, an absolutely horrendous place to be in so I think people really do need to be mindful of it and take it into account. It's interesting actually I was just thinking you when you talked about the role of a mentor I know hooping back to 20 minutes ago but <laughs> I think that's also an area where a real safe space is created because you yeah. know interestingly listening to what a lot of the learners said they, we, they were asked what kind of qualities would you like in a mentor and pretty much time after time top of the list was somebody who's kind somebody who will listen somebody who will encourage us so it, it spoke, spoke of individuals really wanted to create that safe space for themselves to be honest yeah do you know we play in in caps like we play this game called uh, what is it called some kind of bingo game anyway where there's certain things happen day after day where you can Strike it off on a bingo card. You can edit this bit out. And uh, <laughs> my, uh, my thing on this bingo card is randomly changing the subject. <laughs> I think I've got a, a brain that runs at a slightly different pace to some people. <laughs> Faster and slower. I think that's fine, though. And that, that's just another thing to be conscious of, of yourself, isn't it? Is that if you have you know, a thought process that's maybe non-linear, there's, there's ways of managing that, right? I uh, constantly, and I'm going to hold up to the camera so you can, you can see it, constantly take notes as we have these conversations. Because I do the same thing. It's very easy to kind of dart around between topics because they sound interesting. <laughs> and of course, I'm trying to keep some kind of linear structure here for the sake of a podcast. And the only way that I can do that is by tracking. Oh, you said that yeah. and that's interesting. We should come back to it. Okay, we've spoken about that now. I should cross it yeah. off. And I, I do this in every podcast. So it's, again, it's just being aware of in this case, not necessarily uh, aware of your emotions, but it's it's aware of your mental state and aware of how you think and what works for you, right? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. It might be worth mentioning as well, I've got Asperger's. And I think in particular, I, I know that's quite commonplace, actually, in the tech sector and in cyber. And I think that definitely alters the way I communicate and the way I think. And I think some of this jumping around is, <laughs> is my mind doing just that. <laughs> so I think that's everything that I had on my list to to talk about so can we 
quickly try and summarize some of the some of the advice and guidance that we've we've covered as we've gone through. I guess let's break it down to advice and guidance for people wanting to get into the industry and then also some of the things that we spoke about on the recruitment side of things. So if you if you had somebody who was interested in getting into cyber and there was one thing from this podcast that you could leave them with as a as a parting message, what would it be? Okay, my one thing is going to be don't let the language, the perception, the whole smoke and mirrors put you off. You can do it. Yeah, what would mine be? I think probably something along a similar vein that would be just because everybody else looks like they've got it 100% sorted doesn't mean they have. And actually everybody's just bumbling around like you. And if you've got the interest and determination, that is way more important than knowing everything at that stage. I think mine would be what what I said earlier, which is leaving people with the thought that you can be technical if you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. You can go whichever way it works for you. Fantastic. Yeah. So what about um, organizations who've listened in and they may be conscious of things like diversity within the recruitment process, they want to improve things there, or they just want to get stronger, better candidates uh, for some of their cyber roles? What kind of advice would you give organizations looking to recruit new people into cyber? Well, the first thing is hit us up at Caps Lock. We can get a, a partnership in place. We've got some fantastic learners coming through. Um, that's just a bit of a plug for Caps Lock. But yeah, generally, you know, I think it's it's really focusing in on on the image that you're putting out there, the language that you're using, your job specs that you're putting out. You know, do you really need them to have five years experience in technology that's only been around for three? You know, first of all, <laughs> it tends to be a bit of a common thing. You know, do you really need all 20 of those things? You know, put them in essentials, uh, in desirables, sorry, if not, because it, it can be really off-putting for people, you know, looking at that. And some people will be looking at that and wanting to tick off and be confident ticking off every single one of those skills and won't apply. So you might be missing a really, really big pool of talent. Yeah, I'd say look in different places. Really consider your recruitment criteria and why you look in the places you look and where else could you be taking that? I think for, for me, for for organisations, it's going to be taking a look at that process and explaining to candidates what your recruitment process is. I think when I when I speak to candidates who have been interviewing for several different roles, that's often one of the things that I hear from them, that companies aren't very forthcoming about. Like, what is the process? How many interviews are there? Will there be a technical assessment? How are you grading me? How can I come across in, in the best way for this role? Because, of course, if you don't know how, how you're being graded or what the process is, you, you're never going to mm-hmm. give the best representation of yourself. Yeah, that's a really good point. We, we actually had a, a learner recently. It's a, it's a female learner who, who they were called, I don't know if it was a recruiter, I can't remember how it came about, but they were asked uh, and they were told at 10 o'clock, the evening before that they would have an interview the next day and I think that was at 10 a.m the next day they walked into this interview and it was no opportunity to talk about themselves at all it was just straight into a highly kind of technical exercise which when we were told about it, it was like that is not an entry-level role you know what they're asking of you there and then that that was it for an hour you know with no advance notice no advance warning no prep for it at all and it just totally knocked her confidence and it was just like that's that's a ridiculous way to, to be interviewing people. Um, and it seems to be, oh, I probably shouldn't say this, but it's it's an organisation that, that looks like they're targeting our female learners, but almost setting them up to fail, you know? The cynical bit of me is that, is that just somebody who goes, okay, we've got to tick a box and say we're interviewing women, but just so we can show they're not quite good enough to work for us? 
you know it's um but it was it was a horrendous experience for her you know and she's saying now I'm not interviewing again for for months and months I've no interest you know um and it's going to take her a, a while for her to build a confidence from that and she was absolutely set up to fail on that interview yeah that's that's so difficult isn't it but hopefully hopefully in this podcast we've, we've left both sides with something that they can work on to to improve things and I guess all that's left now is to thank you both for, for being on the show oh thanks for having us Thank you.